Diane. It's um, really a pleasure to talk to you again on Buddhist Geeks. It's been, I think it's been several years since we last recorded a conversation. So I'm really happy to, to be talking to you again here. Thanks for inviting me. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, Vince, and see what you're thinking about, what you're up to. Yeah, thank you. I guess um, part of what brought you into my field of awareness is um, that last year, one of my students and friends, Francis Lacoste, um, gifted me a spot in one of your three-day integral facilitator trainings up in the West Coast of Canada, which was beautiful up there, amazing. And I went to that training and really, really enjoyed it and thought it was, frankly, one of the most effective facilitator trainings I've ever been part of, um, which I haven't been part of a ton, but you know, this is one thing I really appreciate about you is your, your skill in this domain. Thank you. And there's, there's a lot of stuff that happened there that I guess I have in mind that I'd love to talk to you about things like, you know, the model that you use of sameness and difference, the, you know, the approach you're taking to inclusivity and the kinds of conversations we had in that environment, which I've never had in in that kind of forum before and that kind of more semi not like totally private not totally public but environment where there's a lot of people who don't know each other having really difficult and interesting and important conversations hmm. so those are some of the things i was thinking about you know when when i reached out to to talk to you and then of course you know all the stuff that you're doing in the zen side of the street as well and the relationship between the more secular based work and the more religious kind of work and the relationship between those two was also something that's on my mind because it's up for both Emily and I and how we um, are teaching as well. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's that's a little brain dump in terms of the kinds of things I've been thinking about. Yeah, that's great. Well, one of the, it was kind of a uh, an insight that came later, but I realized that meditation and mediation really are the same thing, that meditation, we're bringing our our body, breath, mind, and environment into oneness. And when we mediate, or lots of cases facilitate, that we're bringing, you know, different perspectives or disputing parties or differences kind of into a sort of shared space or mutuality or kind of wholeness. So in a certain way, it's the same thing. Mm. And um, so there's been a a kind of cross-referencing in my own work between, you might say, my inner life and my outer work. But they're one and the same, really. Mm. That's interesting the way you're talking about that as being the same thing, because I can see absolutely what you're saying there in terms of meditation on the interior level and then mediation with groups. Is that the difference? Is it is it a difference of like focusing on oneself and focusing on a group? Yeah, I think so, in the sense that um, in most practice environments, most of the instruction is about how we deal with ourselves and work, come into relationship, become more intimate with ourselves, how, how we let go of fixations and obstacles in the mind, how we, mm. and there's a generalized kind of sense of the, you might say the spiritual virtues that result of that and practicing the paramitas or the perfections of, of generosity, of loving kindness, of those kinds of things. Mm. But as a facilitator, I can kind of maybe move one step beyond the sort of precepts and the, you know, the admonitions of 
spiritual practice in our collectives and actually work with what's going on in the way that you do on the cushion with your own mind. Mm. So I think that's how I see it differently. Does that make sense as a way of talking about it? I think so. Yeah, I think so. I mean, my mind started to go to kind of some of the conversations and the types of things we were exploring on that facilitator training. And that makes it real concrete and obvious to me because we were talking about issues related to gender and things like the Me Too movement and Mm -hmm. race, racial issues and class issues and Mm -hmm. you know all of these things that are like so inflamed and up Mm -hmm. for us culturally Mm -hmm. you know and and particularly on twitter and facebook Mm -hmm. and places like that Mm -hmm. like we were really talking about those things and in a way because it was sort of mediated and facilitated in a way that it just felt like we were pushing into new kinds of territory where where new perspectives were emerging and it was like oh this isn't just the kind of cliche I have in my head or this sort of template I have in my head about how people are around this issue. Mm-hmm. It was like way more complexity and nuance in people's living experiences. Yeah. Well, that's extremely important to me. So I think the, in Zen, there's an old saying, everything the same, everything different. Mm-hmm. And so this kind of recognition that you might say of fundamental unity and then just limitless diversity Mm. And the way in which the domain of beingness that is, you know, timeless and formless, unconditioned, unqualified, in which we can experience a kind of non-separation or oneness with all things, and there's no time. And then on the other hand, the way in which our our evolutionary view is time-bound and also moves from one perspective towards greater and greater complexity and diversity. So if we want to work with both parts, if you will. They're not ultimately separate, of course, but Mm. these different domains of experience, we have to develop some skills around both deepening our experience of oneness and at the same time becoming more sophisticated in how we work with difference because they register in the nervous system extremely differently. So when when we're in an experience of sameness, whether it's coherence with ourself or belonging with a group or a kind of unitive experience in nature, the nervous system registers and feels that coherence and relaxes. I mean, I I think I've heard it called the feed and breed Mm. state of the nervous system. But as soon as we sense difference or opposition of any kind, the nervous system gets excited and very alerted to it because difference is perceived often as threat. So even movement, you know, movement in the environment is perceived in a certain way. It can be exciting and then exciting often leads very quickly to discomfort and then to threat. And mm-hmm. once we're, you know, once we're actually feeling threatened, then as we know, the the oldest part of the brain, the reptilian brain, <laughs> gives us basically two, two or three pretty crude options. And yet we try to function in these environments. So people feel terribly threatened when we're talking often about these issues. Mm-hmm. But most of us, most facilitators, don't take time to deal with the brain and the nervous system as a way to support people when we're actually talking about, you know, what our strategies for creating more social justice are. So I try to invite people to take care of the oldest part of the brain first, a sense of threat, create more safety and belonging, and then really pay attention mm. to the limbic system, to the to limbic resonance, because if a group is feeling um, uneasy, let's say maybe not, we're not all the way to downright threat, but we're feeling uneasy, then that limbic resonance will take over in the room. In the same way panic 
moves through a herd of antelope when there's a predator in the landscape. So I, I always say, you know, old brain, mid brain, then use the prefrontal cortex. Mm. So, and then if we get into, once we've established that sort of resonance and created some kind of a trustable bond, then we have the capacity to move into even deeper, more exciting and sometimes threatening conversations because we know how to restore commonality or belonging. We know how to soothe the nervous system when needed. If, if we, if the room becomes too threatened, we literally, as you know, the access to the prefrontal core cortex to our logic to our memory is impaired so we're learning a lot mm, and, and our wisdom. wisdom yeah so the brain science is offering us a ton right now in terms of practice i think that's really interesting yeah that was also mapped on pretty well with how the the, the training was i mean I, I think you in the beginning the first day was focused on sameness and com- coming into coherence with each other and and then, then we, then you dropped all these I dropped know, intense bombs, prompts. I? <laughs> yeah. Then, then, then it's like, okay, now you're going to facilitate this group on the Me Too movement. It's like, oh, thanks, Diane. <laughs> Let's just have a conversation about it, shall we? <laughs> yeah. Um, but I do. I, I did find what you said. Like at that point, you know, it felt like there was enough of a sense of trust with people and and you know, kind of knowing people, even though they're also completely mysterious still and unknown. Um, there was a sense of being able to kind of go into that without a complete rupturing of, of relationship, mm-hmm. which I often experience even in close relationships. So it's like hard to talk about this <laughs> stuff. So I thought that was amazing that we could do that even with people that we didn't know so well. Well, again, if we, if we, if we soothe, it's, it's a little bit like acu- acupuncture. If a, if a system is too agitated, it needs to be soothed and listening sharing commonalities, um, turn-taking, those kinds of things help uh, recalibrate the nervous system. And however, if the nervous system stays in that state for too long, often will become bored or complacent. And then the, the stimulating move, you know, again, to use the acupuncture analogy, if a system is sluggish, needs to be uplifted or stimulated and introducing difference or introducing challenge or a little bit of controversy is exciting to a system. And people can actually go, right. like, oh, I actually do have perspectives and I'm a little scared to hear what you have to say. And there's a really funny SNL skit. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen it where Will Ferrell and Kate McKinnon and a bunch of other comedians are in a restaurant together. And it's like friends night out at the restaurant. And somebody brings up the Aziz Ansari, Ansari and the Me Too movement. It's a couple of years <laughs> back. And all of a sudden the conversation becomes, watch it careful you know everything everyone says watch it careful so you know we're trying to get past (laughs) that you know into something more real and sustained people can actually learn from i think people want to learn people in my world and this is you know of course our institutions there's institutionalized racism and sexism and there's all kinds of systems change that needs to happen and there are also lots of human beings whose heart and will are in the right place and how do we actually create environments so we really can work together. Yeah. What do you remember from that Me Too conversation? Were you able to say anything as a, as a male? Yeah, actually, it was very interesting because for me, like my experience of the Me Too movement on social media predominantly was seeing a lot of folks that I was connected with open up, especially a lot of women opening up and sharing really 
maybe for the first time, publicly details about experiences that they'd had of sexual abuse. And what I found so interesting about that was that it actually, in seeing that, it actually helped me realize that I had experienced sexual abuse as well growing up. And yet I didn't feel comfortable saying that at the time Mm -hmm. or sharing that publicly. Mm -hmm. Um, In part because it seemed like, I guess, the the belief I, I had and maybe still to some degree have is like, it's not something that happens to, to men or boys or, or we're somehow our experience isn't as important. And so I should, shouldn't say anything. Mm -hmm. And that was really helpful in that context to be able to share that with the group, um, to say that out loud for one of the first times is very healing. Um, and I think it did add a kind of fold, an extra fold to the conversation, extra dimension to the people who I was in that conversation with. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the challenges I think of social media is that, you know, these movements, which, which need to happen and are really important for the evolution of culture, yes. they do happen in extremely broad strokes. And, you know, I can understand that if you had shared online that the response might be, you know, we're always taking care of men and give us a moment, will you? And, um, but to be able to share that in the group mm-hmm. and to be received and I guess is respected for your willingness to share was probably, well, I think you said it was healing. Yeah, it was. And, and there were a number of women in, in that group and um, how they received that was with compassion and care. And uh, yeah, it was incredibly helpful at the same time there were other things going on in that conversation that were challenging as well that, that seemed to be generational, you know, in, in nature. And it was interesting also to see kind of how I, how I was relating to the experience of older men who were, I think maybe a little more reactive than me, uh, feeling a little bit more put out by, um, I guess the perception of being attacked Mm -hmm. And I can relate to that. You know, I, sometimes I feel overwhelmed feeling like, oh man, being a white man really sucks Mm -hmm. right now. Um, But then I listen to, you know, I listen to myself and go, okay, yeah, there's a lot more to that. And, and I know that in part because I'm also Palestinian and I realize on the Palestinian side of the, of the street that it's um, there's an absurdity to, to that, to that. But, um, but at the same time, I could see how for some of the older men in the group, I could really start to identify with and understand more of their conditioning and where they came from and, and maybe why they're having that such a hard time with this explosion of truth telling in public and anger and, and blame and, you know, and and shame and things like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that was really interesting as well. Yeah, and I think as as a facilitator, sometimes when we're working in groups where people have both kind of different histories and different conditioning, and you might even say different, see the world through different developmental lenses, Mm. that, you know, simple cues can sometimes help where you might say to those kinds of people, it's not that your perspective 
doesn't have validity, but it's really important right now to hear this one. Do you feel, um, do you feel it's something you can do for a few minutes is to sit back and just actually hear a perspective that's different from yours. And sometimes it will put them at ease if you can kind of just frame that there's room for everyone to contribute, but we're going to do it in an order. (laughs) And right now the order is going to be for voices that haven't been heard to actually be heard. I sometimes find that tough. Yes. That's cool. Are there kind of larger trends, cultural trends that you're noticing playing out in the groups that you work with on these issues? Are there things that you see changing and emerging in around some of these issues you know, that broad, broadly speaking, I guess you could call part of like in- inclusion or inclusivity. Yeah, it is a big question. I, I think that what I'm experiencing right now is a, an overall heightening, heightened awareness around the legacies of, of racism and, and sexism and the, the oppression that LGBTQ people experience and, you know, marginalized groups, religiously marginalized groups or socioeconomically marginalized groups that Mm -hmm. there's, there's this kind of brightening of the, the understanding of how deep these trends are and how intractable and that it isn't simply a matter of people paying attention to their own hidden biases that we actually have to redesign our systems and our structures to address these and I, I was involved in the, uh, an effort when I worked in the court system, uh, quite a long-term initiative on racial and ethnic fairness justice, and just acknowledging and starting to work with the idea that at every point along the way, from a stop all the way to sentencing, conviction, and probation, that people of color are um, overrepresented at every level. Mm-hmm. and. So the court system is a place where I have firsthand experience of people trying to overhaul the systems. And it's not an easy task. But what I do notice today is a couple of trends. I notice that there are theories coming out of the academic institutions that very quickly become dogmatic and make it difficult sometimes even for me. I mean, I've been facilitating these kinds of conversations in different contexts for geez, over 30 years, if not closer to 40. Um, and so the temperament has changed. There's, there's a certain kind of dogma. So for instance, I'll give you an example. Um, the other night I facilitated a conversation and it was a mixed group of people. There were people of color, whites, mostly young, everybody under 40. It's a particular group that I was working with at the Zen Center. And when I talked about a developmental shift between kind of ethnocentrism and world centrism, ethnocentrism is defined by our group belonging, by our sense of us and them. We derive safety from our groups. We generally feel threatened by those who are different. And world centrism in which suddenly difference becomes less threatening and we're more excited by it in a healthy way in which us and them doesn't play nearly as strongly. And there's more of a, sense of identification with humanity. And I was interrupted and challenged because the view of one or more of the students was that 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 is a white person's fantasy, that there is a oneness in humanity, and that any marginalized person anywhere in the world 
um, doesn't have the privilege, if you will, to imagine that kind of togetherness. And, you know, it's very tempting when these truths are spoken because there, there is a truth there, um, that they become monolithic and exclusive. And in a certain way, all the great spiritual exemplars, you know, from, from Jesus down to Martin Luther King are sort of exiled with that statement, the idea that, you know, we could learn to treat each other as one or that we, you know, I'm even thinking of Black Elk right now with his vision, you know, of all these tribes of different colored skin coming together as one people, you know, in a certain way, this, this aspiration becomes marginalized in the room. And uh, so I, I very gently tried to receive sure. what was true about it. And, and then also said, some people would argue, of course, that the, the very fact we're having this conversation is an example of world centrism, because otherwise we would just fully expect that we're going to treat each other in a up down fashion and that the you know oppression is just part of the situation and everybody's struggle is to remain on top and or find our way to being on top and so the fact that mm. we're even considering that not only that we should be treated equally but that we should look for outcomes that are fair that, that in itself is world centric mm. and they actually seem that actually seemed to help them you know they relaxed a little bit and we agreed to continue to kind of explore that so both those could perspectives could continue to inform the way we think and how we act in the world about these issues so that would be an example these kind of truths that come into the room and kind of put a full stop on all other perspectives that's one thing i notice and at the same time i as i said i think it's exciting that so many people are so energized by the issues of social justice these days yeah, I mean, I, I remember when I first met you in the early aughts um, at the Integral Institute, it seemed like there were really only, th these things were only really up and being discussed in certain contexts, like, you know, in, at Naropa University, where I went to school, it was a big topic, and in certain academic environments and corporate environments, but very rare. And now it seems to be the fact that it's it's not just a rare thing, but it's become a center. Yeah center point of conversation across culture. Yeah. And I think it's just a continuing ripening and, and maturing of our, you know, of our shared aspiration for equality and equity. You know, Kim makes a very important point that they're not the same and that they get conflated and confused. Equality and equity. Yeah. What's the, um, what's the difference as, as you understand it? Well, equality tends to be the, both the aspiration that people are treated equally and, you know, we see reflections of the aspiration for equality in our uh, constitution and bill of rights and in our legislation, um, you know, granting equal access and um, equal treatment to people. Equity really has to do with the outcomes that mm. is created by those attempts at equality. And sometimes he, he says, and I, I, I'm not as deeply um, initiated into these differences, so I can't speak that well. So I'd refer your listeners to, to some of Ken's recent podcasts where he talks about this. But for instance, he makes the point that one of the differences between, if we think about for just a moment, the binary differences between males and females that are observed when 
children are young, that males tend to be more interested in things and females tend to be more interested in people. Now, granted, there are always uh, exceptions to that. And there are, there's, as we know, there's ambiguity sometimes around sexuality and sometimes around gender identification. So setting those aside for just a moment, there are these trends. And that if you measure equality by how many people enroll in, let's say, an engineering program versus how many people enroll in a nursing program, what the genders are, it can lead you to believe that there is unequal treatment when in fact there may be other factors that are affecting equity. And so he says we have to be, be quite sophisticated about how we determine and measure equity and make sure that we're not conflating equal treatment with equitable outcomes and that uh, sometimes they have to be analyzed very carefully and differently. I, I've heard other people make similar kinds of arguments that you're – anyway, that, that's the basic idea. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It does make sense. Yeah. And the, the, the example that came to mind is I think one I've heard, um, Ken mentioned recently in a podcast about how, um, you know, some decades ago, the number of women who were entering into and graduating from college was significantly lower than the the number of men. And now that trend is actually flipped Mm -hmm. so that there are more women entering into and uh, graduating from college than there are men. And it's interesting to kind of note that just as a fact, you know, an objective fact, it doesn't seem like we really are too, as a culture, we're not sort of saying, Oh, we need to fix this and start, you know, creating more equal access for men. Um, so it's a pretty clear example where that, that difference does make a difference. Yeah. Yeah. And does he, did he offer any kind of reasons why that is happened and, I don't think he did um, get into the reasons behind it, um, but I was—I am curious about that. Yeah, what, what's up with that? It's probably Jordan Peterson's fault. Somehow. <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> you know, Jordan Peterson. <laughs> Sorry, I just dropped that one in the. No, <laughs> that's like a totally bomb. Just threw that one in a conversation. I, mean, I, I can see Jordan Peterson. I've actually heard him speak on this on this topic of these unexpected outcomes. And, you know, I think it's an important point. My challenge with Jordan Peterson is that while I actually agree with some of what he says, I see that he hasn't really considered maybe why people have such strong feelings about things as they do. In other words, he hasn't integrated, we might say, healthy pluralism or healthy green so that he's coming from an integral perspective. Yeah, like he's not like he's not empathizing or capable of em- empathizing fully with those perspectives. Yeah. And then still creating exception or creating um, complexity. He de- he seems to be somewhat one-sided as opposed to more highly integrated is what I observe. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. And and I, I like that you're bringing up uh, sort, uh, sort of the developmental side of this, because that seems to be one of the things that's most absent from a lot of these conversations to me, having, you know, studied with Wilbur and studied developmental theory, it's like, it seems to have such a powerful explanatory. (laughs) It's so so good at helping understand things. And yet, because we're talking about hierarchical stages um, of development, even if it's not purely hierarchical, um, it's more, 
nuanced and wave-like or whatever, still there's, we're kind of making these differences of degree. Mm -hmm. uh, and that seems to be not always received so well. Um, particularly if someone is focused more on kind of pluralistic values, it seems like that, that kind of mindset seems to kind of attack any sense of vertic of a vertical difference, mm -hmm. you know, and I, I say that from experience having, having done this, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and, and I, I feel like I can understand, you know, in a way why, mm -hmm. and there's, as you said, there's truth in, in it too, mm -hmm. but I'm curious if you could, you know, respond to that because, uh, you teach developmental models mm -hmm. with, with your work and you are working, I think with a lot of people who have very value, the sort of pluralistic values and and may have some of the same kind of pushback on, on on stages of development how do you work with that what do you find uh is useful there well stage stage development or or frameworks involving kind of stages of human growth or human processes is really became really important to my work as a mediator and it's actually how i came to be introduced to ken's work and then how i eventually met him so Mm. When I was working at the courts and I, at the time, you know, I had a reputation for being able as a mediator facilitator to help people have really difficult conversations. And so at that particular time, and that was in the early nineties in the, the court system here, and then also public meetings that I was doing. And I started to both in the context of mediation and also in these larger public meetings, I started to use a stage model to describe some of what I was seeing. And the stage model that I spontaneously started to use was Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's Stages of Grief. Because I would see people who, let's say if we were, if we were talking about race and, and the justice system, I would see people who, to me, looked like they were just in complete denial. As far as they were, they were concerned, there was no problem. You know, their view, the system was doing its best to be just and Yes. And that was that. And then you would see this equal and opposite tendency for people to be super passionate and often enraged and in some ways difficult to manage, but, you know, because they'd bring a lot of intensity to the meeting. So I'd see, you know, I'd see anger and then I would see what I was labeling as kind of a bargaining, you know. So certain people of color who were within the system who seemed to be able to find a way to exist there and navigate it, but some degree of stress and discomfort, but there was an attempt. And then I would see people who were just sort of lethargic and depressed about the conversation, not really willing to engage. And then I'd see these remarkable people that seemed to be all of those things and none of those things. And they seemed to be energized and willing to engage and Occasionally they were outraged and other times they were quiet and attentive and respectful and listening. And I just got kind of curious about this whole spectrum that I was seeing. And I started to kind of think about as a mediator, how I'd been somewhat naive, you know, I would have people come into mediation with the assumption that everyone can negotiate for themselves, but they couldn't hold their own point of view because they'd been either battered or from some sort of marginalized mm. class of people, or I would see people who could take their own perspectives really readily, but could not take the perspectives of others. I could, I saw people who could 
take the perspective of their spouse in a divorce, but they couldn't take the perspective of a, of a judge or of a court of law. Mm. I saw people who couldn't think very clearly about the future and were gripping to the past. I saw people who were open to the future while integrating the past. So that's how I started to get interested in developmental models was literally by seeing these differences and knowing that people were not necessarily sick or pathological, but they really had difference in worldviews and in their capacities. And that's when I was introduced to Ken Wilber's work, right? Literally within that period of time. And then uh, synchronistically, I guess, was actually was able to meet him in about six or nine months after starting to read him. So it was really quite an encounter and changed my life quite significantly. What I've learned about working with stage development is people, people don't like it very much because it tends to, as you pointed out, there, ten, there looks like there's a, a hierarchy and it looks like a dom- dominator hierarchy where one set of people are somehow superior to another set of people when in fact it, has, it describes in a certain way the capacity for more complexity. And one way to think about that is the ability to to entertain multiple perspectives and even to go so far as to seek multiple perspectives is one dimension of human development. And um, hmm. so I found that rather than trying to teach stage models to groups, that I like to invoke them into models, meaning how many of you here feel like you want to learn? Hmm. How many of you here feel that you'd like to hear different perspectives? How many of you want to be changed by this encounter? So rather than saying, this is what happens, I say, are you open to this possibility? And usually people kind of want to get on board with that, at least the groups I work with. Mm. And, you know, I'm probably in a subculture of certainly, you know, of highly educated people with a lot of disposable income and a lot of opportunity to learn and grow who identify as learners. So it's definitely a select group, but I I do have experience of being able to kind of bring people along no matter what their particular worldview is by how I kind of join with them and relate with them and then offer them just the right amount of a new perspective. Mm without attacking them, without demeaning them, without making them bad and wrong, without doing all the things that we do on social media that's contributing so much to just the intense polarization in the country. And there are all kinds of reasons for that, as we know, but it's a real problem. It's very hard to work with because it's so dense. It's so so unnuanced. So in the environment you were in, we were able to have some very highly nuanced conversations and also some you know, if, if on a day where I feel like I do a good job, I actually get to hear what the white men really think about things. <laughs> so that's how I measure if it's a good day, you know, because everybody else has felt significantly heard and seen. And then all of a sudden they get curious, like, what's the stress of being white? Why, why is so much pressure put on you to provide? Why do you have to exist in so much isolation? Why do you think that you're dropping out of college? What are the biggest lessons and what are the ways we can support young white males to grow and change and not to succumb to the stress and the pressure of feeling wrong? And isn't it important that we not end up doing the same thing, which is basically unloading on one group of people? Mm. Some people will have a lot of intolerance around that point of view, but I just simply refuse to 
participate in environments in which anybody's scapegoated. That's awesome. I kind of, as you're saying that I'm thinking back to one of the sort of central themes that seemed to come up in that group, which was around how people were relating to the, to the whole notion of political correctness. And I think you right out of the door uh, address this. And it was very interesting just to hear other people acknowledge and not just people that are typically considered to be privileged, but everyone actually acknowledging how the fear or concern of saying the wrong things or getting into the wrong kind of conversation, like was really prevalent and felt like a barrier to being able to have more honest, open, truthful um, conversations. And I appreciated that that was addressed um, and that we kind of looked at that um, before we dove into this stuff. Well, you know, I've, I've got a new book coming out in May called Compassionate Conversations that I wrote with um, Gabriel Wilson, who's African-American, and Kimberly Lowe, who's, the, she ha- he has a degree in education and she has a degree in conflict resolution and she's she's a British citizen, but she's of Chinese descent. So the three of us collaborated together mm. and we wrote a chapter on political correctness. And part of what we argue in the chapter is that political correctness is a form of right speech. Mm-hmm. You know, to encourage everyone to be attentive to different perspectives of different people in the room and to pay attention to when we're engaged in put downs or stereotyping or yes, uh, all kinds of or generalizations is really, really important. And on the other hand, when we disallow for people to explore in conversation and we punish people for making what we consider to be mistakes, and we go so far as to cancel people for doing the wrong thing. I mean, we give an example of, of a kafia, which is a Palestinian. You probably have views about the kafia, you know, and it can be seen as um, cultural appropriation. It can be seen as the kafia is the traditional scarf worn by the Palestinian people. Um, I think Yasser Arafat probably made it more famous than anybody else, but it's common for many Arabs to wear it. And it's, you know, sold rather liberally throughout the markets and, you know, shops in the Middle East. And a lot of Western Westerners have taken to wear it, but it has lots of messaging associated to it that is, you know, perceived as politically aligned. And, you know, like I say, culturally appropriating from the Palestinians, or it can be viewed as anti-Semitic. So someone wears a keffiyeh and then suddenly their friends refuse to talk to them and they're not even quite tuned into the controversy. You know, that would be an mm. example of, of a situation that, you know, it'd be way better to have a conversation about it and really look into it because there's so much we can learn. What do you think about that as an example? <laughs> I think it's a great example because I actually know almost nothing about it. So, and here I am actually, this is my, you know, this is my family's culture. So, um, that's an interesting example with Palestinians in particular, because those Palestinians who've left, who left Palestine in the late forties, you know, like in the case of my family, I think in many families, in order to survive as refugees, they've had to largely jettison many aspects of their culture. Mm -hmm to adapt to new cultures. And so I grew up 
really not knowing a lot about uh, about my own heritage and and, and mm-hmm. my grandparents and my mom's culture. So you know, I think that's a perfect example because I could easily see making that mistake myself. Um, oh, seriously, yeah, I've been given kafiyas by as gifts when I've taught mm-hmm. in Israel, and mm-hmm. I had no idea that that I would be viewed as a terrorist if I wore one, or I'd mm-hmm. be seen as stealing from Arabs, or I mean, there's all kinds of different interpretations we can put on it. So they're resting quietly in my drawer, except when I go camping. <laughs> when you're out, when you're out alone in the woods, the animals are not do, not giving me a hard time <laughs> because they are extremely. There is something about them that they're tremendously useful when it's hot, when it's chilly. Mm-hmm. You know, there's so many different ways you can use them. That's so interesting. Mm-hmm. That's a great example. Hey, there's something. Here's something I've noticed lately, and I think it, it ties into what we're talking about. I, I noticed in, and it relates to think the, the, the denial stage that you're talking about. I've really seen a very big amount of pushback from folks again, particularly on social media, but still, I think it's representative of how people actually feel, which is that spiritual practice, Buddhist practice, these, these kinds of contemplative things that we shouldn't be talking about these differences actually, because the, the whole point, and if you are, you're deluded because the whole point is to realize this sort of oneness or formless freedom. And I see people regularly pushing back, even educated, smart, you know, people um, pushing back with that idea and it seems to be just to me incredibly wrongheaded and immature, uh, spiritually immature, uh, developmentally immature, and yet it's like seems to be a very strong cultural response right now to maybe to this situation of like these things are coming out, they're being talked about more. There's more anger being vented. There's you know like there's stuff coming up, and I wonder have you seen this as well? This kind of spiritual um i don't even know what to call it it's just like a it's like an insistence on the on the absolute side of the street yeah i experienced it years ago in my early training when i was in my 20s and i was in spiritual context and i would kind of try to raise certain kinds of issues and then you know it it can happen within spiritual training and spiritual circles where you're you're viewed as attached or you're viewed as not residing deeply enough in just your open awareness. And, and I agree with you. I mean, I think it, it's actually born of a, of a misunderstanding of the relationship of unity to difference. And that what we mentioned earlier on the call is that we actually need really good recognition of the role of both in human culture and also in mm-hmm. our evolution of culture and uh, human development and learning how to work with difference is absolutely, from my perspective, that's one of the reasons that I, in my own practice setting, insist on it. Because I've been in spiritual groups that reside in this kind of, it's, it's a certain kind of imposed harmony. It reminds me of like, you know, the Eastern Bloc countries in Eastern Europe. And as soon as the wall goes down, mm-hmm. this kind of imposed unity just kind of blows up. And that's what I've seen in spiritual communities is that when there's a controversy related to an abuse of power or mm. there's just difficulties that arise that we don't have the skill set to actually work with it. So I'm like you, I've taken a super st- strong stand that, that um, we need to learn to work out a, 
how to work with our differences, particularly if we want to have any kind of effect in relating, giving some of our energy to influencing society for change. So it's really, really, it's necessary. And I think most people are mm. just trying to find a way to feel good. And it's so hard to feel good in, in some of these conversations these days. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's challenging. Mm-hmm. And particularly if people are coming out of backgrounds that were really stressed and they found refuge in sitting still or yes. they found quietude or they've managed to have some peace, you know, it can, you know, that's for me, that's, that's just a bus stop along the way. Yeah. I mean, and you're highlighting again, the truth in it, which is uh, admirable. Uh, yeah. Sometimes it's just, I just hear someone who just seems to be un aware of how their denial of differences impacts and compounds the pain of that difference and, and, and holds in place some of the systemic causes of it. Well, one of the most obvious places um, where you, you might see that happening is in relationship to Asian Buddhism and the role of women in Asian Buddhism. Mm. There's this, incredible dignity of the human being who practices in that way. And yet the social status of women around the world, as we know, is simply not commensurate with that with men and particularly within that group of people. So, you know, we have Asian nuns around the planet saying, Hey, you know, enough's enough. Yeah, it's true. It's true. I mean, that's, I, I I think in, in the Buddhist environments, Western Buddhist environments I've been in, you know, there's often this sense that, like the Asian Buddhists have, have it kind of more figured out in a way. Um, you know, and I understand why, because people's had Asian teachers and I'm, I'm sure they were very impressive teachers. Um, and I kind of always bristled a bit against that because yeah, I guess maybe I knew this from my, from my own family, you know, in the middle Eastern origin. It's like, these are very, very, very strictly patriarchal societies, many of them. And as is their religious expressions. And so, you know, it's like everything is good unless you try to step outside of that frame and then you just are smushed. <laughs> you know, it's like. Well, that's, that's the power of traditional yes. settings, yes. right? Is that the, the protocols are so strong that they keep everybody in line. And then if you try to step out of them, you're exiled, basically. Yeah, which is like kind of death for, you know, for, for us as mammals. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. It's like, no shit. <laughs> yeah. And so that's a big deal. Um, so, you know, we would probably refer to that, what you're describing, this kind of um, insistence that everyone's empty and that it's just fleeting phenomenon. We shouldn't work for social change. Yes. You know, that's, we would probably call that a spiritual bypass. Yeah. And, and very much like a mythical kind of stage of development, you could say, in you know, a mythical membership. <laughs> we all believe in the sort of absolute truth of the, of the, of the original Buddha's teachings, you know, on emptiness or whatever. And then, you know, but I also find the rational modernist Buddhism to be, you know, kind of (laughs) not as so interesting. Like I'm not interested in reducing everything to, to the brain either in cognitive science. And I think there's a lot of, like you said, so much that that intersection is providing, but it's also as a contemplative, I find it, like a bit of a dead end street. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think you, you know, it's funny. Um, our good friend, Jeff Sol. Well, I think 
actually, I think I'm completing things. I know I've heard Ken say that there is a red Jesus, an amber Jesus, an orange Jesus, and the same is true of Buddhism. Buddhism can be interpreted through all of these different frameworks. It can be highly, highly traditional with super conformist values and built-in prejudices that go along with tradition against homosexuality, against women, those kinds of things. And you find a very rational Buddhism. And I think one of the reasons that Buddhism came and was from Asia and was able to settle so quickly in the West, in Europe and Americas, is the the rational secularism Mm, that you find in, in the writing of somebody like Stephen Batchelor, who simply doesn't, He's not interested in the cultural trappings. Yes. He's not interested, as far as I can tell, in views of mysticism. He's saying, you know, what the Buddha taught was a rational, very accessible view of reality that you can test and confirm for yourself in kind of a highly scientific method. And then you have a kind of green Buddhism coming yes. forward or yes. more pluralistic in which yes. we're actually creating space for all the voices to come forward and we have talking circles and we listen to one another and decentralizing power in institutions. Yeah. Yeah. The teacher's role is, is shifts and changes within those contexts. And, you know, any one of those, you can have a quite a different experience of the culture based on the lens that is kind of laid over the tradition in a way. So I've certainly struggled with that and can work actually helped me clarify some of these things mm-hmm. for instance making a distinction between sort of absolute power of the teacher versus the transmissive power of the teacher mm. Trans- what's transmissive power mean meaning that, that like power to transmit mm-hmm. oh, okay mm-hmm. in other words there's a there's a, a hierarchy not in terms of our innate value as human beings Mm-hmm. Not necessarily in terms of governance. You can actually separate out the functioning of the organization from the teaching function of the of the teacher. But where transmission is concerned, whether one's how one's realization is communicated, that in the same way that you would put yourself in relationship to anyone who's you know achieved mastery in athletics or music or whatever you put yourself in relationship to the teacher in a hierarchical relationship for that purpose Mm -hmm. and to be very clear about that the training and the the teaching and the submission is related to wanting to receive that wanting to experience it might be a better way to say it yes and that doesn't have to do necessarily with how you do your fundraising you know it doesn't have to do with who you should marry and i'm not saying that Guru yoga as a, as a spiritual practice doesn't have legitimacy, but I think in cultures like the States, guru yoga may, may just simply not be the particular kind of practice that we need, but we do need to understand the role of hierarchy in spiritual training. Mm, mm, yeah. And that, it, it seems like what you're describing in part is like the sort of, uh, well, using, using one of Ken's you know, terminology like state training is be, would be one aspect where, you know, like a meditation or Dharma teacher presumably is explored, you know, a lot in terms of their consciousness and accessing and entering and recognizing and identifying different states of consciousness. Mm-hmm. And then of course there's the transmission of the stateless state, um, which doesn't have to do with what's happening in consciousness, but it's like the nature of consciousness itself. 
Yeah. And that, and that's something that can be transmitted, which is pretty bizarre. But it makes sense if our fundamental nature is not separate. Mm. It's really, it really has to do with the teacher's recognition and the student's capacity for that, for recognizing the recognition, you could say. <laughs> but, uh, um, you know, I think yeah. also you might, you might pick up the other side of the street as a teacher and, and help students to some degree see negative patterning. Yes. And that, that part of the role could be to help a, a student start to see how their, the grip of anxiety, what form it takes in them, and the way in which when they're in the grip of anxiety, it looks in a particular way, and to help them start to find ways to let go and release that kind of yes. deeply habituated grip. But you have to put yourself, you know, you have to be willing to receive in a way if you're going to, if you want that kind of guidance. And I, I don't think it's at all clear often when we're in relationship to a teacher. It certainly wasn't for me, and I don't think it's entirely clear between me and my own students all the time. I try to make mm. these things clear, but. Right, but I mean, how could you always, unless you were already perfected? <laughs> <laughs> totally. And when you're just a Zen mongrel like me. <laughs> best I can do is just drag myself into the Zendo and hope other people will join me. <laughs> you know, what you were saying about the role of the teacher, it reminded me of something uh, that Ken McLeod, kind of a distinction he made about the, the role of the teacher. He said something like, um, you know, the role of the teacher's threefold. There are three things a teacher can do. They can help teach you technique. Mm -hmm. They can call you on your stuff mm -hmm. and they can embody the teaching. Mm -hmm. And he made, I, I liked this, <laughs> these three, be, because in part he also said, and, and not every teacher does all of those things well, or even mm -hmm. emphasize, it, it maybe does one of them terribly. <laughs> mm -hmm. And um, I thought that was, it was helpful for me to hear that as a budding teacher, you know, and it was helpful to reflect back on my own relationships with teachers where it's like, oh yeah, like this person, I really learned a lot in terms of technique, but they didn't call me on their stuff. And in fact, probably I should have been the one calling them on their stuff. Mm -hmm, um, you know, things, yeah. yeah. Where it's like, you know, there's, there is this sort of mismatch or these different, you know, entering into a teaching relationship. Like, and, and this happens a lot when I work with folks that are older than me, it's like, I can kind of tell that they're, they have a deeper maturity around certain things in life. And, mm -hmm. you know, sometimes I don't even know what those are because I'm just, you know, it's like, I don't know what I don't know. And it's very humbling to, to be on the one hand, have something to offer, in terms of meditative technique or in terms of supporting someone and, mm. you know, seeing their shadows elements and working with them in a kind of meditative context. But then they, you know, I, I might be totally you know, fucking up on another front and they, mm -hmm. they can see that. You know, I had one student tell me recently, he's in his seventies is like, uh, you really fucked up in our, in our last in, in encounter <laughs> and he explained why and how, and I was like, I agree. I'm really sorry. Wow. Uh, and, you know, it's like that, to me, that's really a beautiful thing, being able to kind of recognize as a teacher, yeah, like I'm, I, don't, I don't have it all figured out, nor do I have to expect myself to have it all figured out. And by not expecting myself to have it all figured out, I can actually model mm -hmm. my own humanity, which to me is somehow part of, of what embodying the teachings is about. I, I like his framing of embodying the teachings. It's probably a better framing than this transmissive function. I mean, I think transmission gets at 
the mind to mind element of, of training, but, but embodiment of the teaching is so comprehensive that that's a really beautiful way to talk about mm. it. And then the, of course, technique and instruction and, um, holding space, I think is really important as well. I, I do have one rule with my students around feedback though, is that I'm open to their feedback, of course, except when I'm trying to give them feedback. <laughs> mm. I make it really clear that if, that if, if the conversation was uh, initiated by me related to something that I'm seeing or I'm disturbed by that, it, that to kind of give me feedback in the same moment is, kind of off limits and then i welcome it when, mm. they, when they bring it in does that make sense because is that be, is that because it's it could be like a deflection or a way to to not receive what's being offered well because it, it kind of turns into a negotiation mm. and uh, a negotiation of perceptions and a, and a negotiation of mutual responsibility and and as the teacher particularly in the tradition that I'm in, there are ways in which I want to affirm and maintain the hierarchy for the purposes of, of serving my students. And if, if that hierarchy is sort of randomly, what happens if you take a hierarchy and you just kind of level it? Undermine? Yeah. So if the hierarchy is just kind of randomly undermined, I don't think that serves anyone. So mm. I want to always be clear that... Um, I want my message and my communication to be received when I'm in the process of giving feedback. And, mm -hmm. and that doesn't mean that I'm not willing to hear it or have someone tell me that I messed up or whatever, but I just don't want that happening in the middle of me trying to mm. work with something. Yeah. And is that, is that particular like in, in a public setting or is that regardless of public or private? I think it's just kind of a general yeah. ground rule that I pay attention to because otherwise I get confused. And as a female mm. who's been trained to listen and to, in a certain way, you know, I don't know what people would say about me, but I'm a second born and I'm a female. So I have deep ambivalence in my body around being in power anyway. And so I really have to kind of clarify and give myself support for the hierarchy at times. And um, I write a little bit about the book in the book uh, about social privilege and the ways in which some of my more mature male students have kind of inadvertently really helped me be a teacher hmm. because their willingness to receive from me and to kind of demonstrate the dignity of studying with a female teacher and their, they do something, their presence stabilizes our environment in a way that when, they're not there. I don't feel that quite so much. So I, I've had to think a lot about this issue of hierarchy and try to find ways to integrate our pluralistic instincts and to create opportunities for sameness and for feedback and for a back and forth. And at the same time, not just give it away entirely because then it's kind of unclear what I'm doing. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've certainly experienced that. <laughs> If I understand you right, I mean, I've, I've experienced sort of prematurely distributing my authority, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. or giving it yeah. away yeah. in a way that mm -hmm. were, led to outcomes that were, um, you know, just not cool, um, creating little pockets of, 
of people who are just doing whatever they wanted to do and who are stepping into the power vacuum and, and asserting their authority anyway. Um, and then, then I became sort of somewhat responsible for that because it's happening under my watch, you know, and under my institution. So <laughs> yeah, totally. Whoa. Yeah. So it can get quite confusing. I do think, you know, people that know me would say, what are you talking about? You're like biggest power monger on the planet. So, mm-hmm. you know, I want to be both own my own will to power and also the ways in which I'm willing to distribute and share it based on, you know, whatever the, you know, just darn our common humanity. But, you know, we don't challenge basketball coaches the way we challenge spiritual teachers, you know, and we don't challenge music teachers and we don't challenge, I mean, anything that requires technical skill, we tend not to challenge people. But, um, but these days there's always, there's always, an, you know, whenever I do a meeting or a facilitation, or whatever, there's always challenges to my authority in a way there didn't used to be. Mm. So I have to be willing to receive and hear what's true and how can I let go? And at the same time, I have to be able to hold sp- space or else people aren't going to trust mm-hmm. me if I give it away too readily and too easily. Diane, there's something I was remembering from, from that facilitator training that, that I thought a lot about. Um, there was a point in the training where, I don't know if you recall this, but you were sort of kneeling down on the floor, kind of almost like in child's pose, a little bit like just kind of relaxing and on the floor. And, um, something that most facilitators don't do, you know, this is something that, you know, <laughs> and, and uh, as someone, what's she doing lying on the floor? Yeah. What, you know, and, and how you, yeah. And how you were, how you were sitting, um, someone noticed it and I was like, this is unusual, like a facilitator that I, you know, never do this. And, and I, what I noticed was that with that recognition of, of kind of how you were different as a facilitator and, and kind of what you were embodying and how you were teaching and stuff, there was a sort of an immediate sense of adoration and adulation, you know, people really like fell in love with you mm-hmm. in that moment. And I could mm-hmm. see that that's part in a way that's part of the, of what makes the sort of teacher student relationship work or the guru disciple relationship work where it's like, Oh, that in that moment you were embodying the teachings. You know, you weren't putting yourself above, you were, mm-hmm. you know, you weren't, you, you were, you, whatever, however it was, what was true in that moment. And I could see then the projections start to like also kick up. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, For that's sure. really interesting because as a teacher, it's like the moment you really let yourself be unguarded and just who you are and whatever people t- will take note. And then start to project, you know, golden shadows start coming out. And it's like, oh my mm-hmm. God, Diane, did you see what she did? She's so amazing. Yeah. Totally. And it's like, yes, that's true. <laughs> and yeah. now how do, you, how do you work with that, Diane, as a teacher, yeah. when that must be kind of, I would imagine, and I've seen it myself some, that it's like there's a feedback uh, loop there uh, that can be really tricky. Yeah, well, every every moment of adulation is followed by a great disappointment. <laughs> so <you know, laughs> when I see the adulation come, I just start to prepare myself for the fall, you know, cause it'll, it'll come mm. soon. And then, and then also, you know, there's, there's the other thing I think the spiritual teachers these days that we're, we're subjected to a lot of criticism and, you know, every, everybody who's in the guidance role of any kind is sub- subjected to projections and to people's critiques and to people's feedback. And, 
But these days, there, there almost seems to be a view that to have power is to abuse power. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I contemplate that a lot because of, I, I think there's, there's just absolutely no way that I can be in a position of authority, say within a Zen context or a position of responsibility when I'm facilitating for the group's experience and for the experience of the whole and not make mistakes. Yes. But I think there's a big difference between making mistakes and trying to recover and be accountable to them and just simply being blind to the, to the fact that power by its nature creates harm and creates injury. So the best I feel that I can offer people is the sense that I take the inquiry of what the right use and the skillful use of power actually is. I've really gotten to the place where, um, because I've, I've sort of tried in many different ways and contexts to, I wouldn't say give away my power, but in some ways to, to flatten the hierarchies and Mm. they naturally exist. You know, they're not always dominator hierarchies, but there is more complexity. There may be more emotional maturity. There may be more experience. I mean, hierarchies just naturally exist in as a product of nature. One tree is taller than another one. And yes. so how do we do it in a way that's conscious and we continue to examine our conduct in ways where we're willing to take challenges and to receive feedback and at the same time understand what the purpose of the hierarchy is and be able to stand for that. So that's the best I can, can offer. And as far as the, the adulation goes, I've seen it change so fast that Hmm. I don't really take it too seriously. Honestly. sounds like you've probably done, which not all teachers have done some serious shadow work. I I, I know this of you, (laughs) you know, you've done really serious shadow Mm -hmm. work as well. So it's, Mm -hmm. you know, not saying you don't have shadow, but that would be my own shadow. Of course. <laughs> I mean, think that. totally. But, but yeah. um, but you know, I, I see you handle yourself in a really mature way. Any identification, if I'm identified as the facilitator, there's some part of me that's non-facilitated. Mm. So, so the very fact that you assume a role or an identity or a way of being naturally something its opposite is not front and center in your awareness. So that's just a given, isn't it? Yes. But you know, if particularly when you facilitate, you, you kind of have to be able to be light on your feet about receiving feedback because if you get some serious feedback or you get a genuine challenge or, you know, somebody calls out an error or something that you've done that really disturbs them, if you don't receive and handle that very well, you're in big trouble. So I do it better in the room working with people than I do it mm-hmm. privately. Mm-hmm. <laughs> privately, I'm just like not available. Yeah. Well, and, and I, there's something sane about that, I think. Yeah. But thanks for, thanks for that little compliment you passed my way a few minutes ago. I, 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 I can genuinely say mm. that I, I want to do yes. not to harm people. And yeah, I know I have, and I want to be accountable to that. I know I will again. Yeah. And, you know, the other side of that is, come on, people, let's, let's o- overcome our fragility a little here, too. Yeah, that's really powerful, I think. Cool. Thank you, Diane. I, I, um, is there anything else that you wanted to, to say and, or share? Well, just that I appreciate your practice, Vince, and I'm so happy that you and Emily still have the Buddhist Geek site up because I know it's been a source of inspiration and it's helped people think about 
their relationship to practice vis-a-vis the traditions and vis-a-vis new emergent properties and culture like technology. And you're, you've always been extremely thoughtful and fundamentally kind. And I appreciate your work and I'm really happy that you're still doing this. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.